0: Well, good morning, Gateway. It's so good to see all of you here this morning. I want you to ready your Bibles um, in Exodus chapter 29. And for those of you that may be visiting with us this morning, we welcome you here. Um, It is our practice to work our way through the book of the Bible, or through a book of the Bible. Um, And we just believe that God's word is relevant, and we just need to figure out what that is. And uh, God is always there to show us how important his truth is. And uh, Debbie Mason's going to come, and she's going to read the text for us this morning. So if you would please stand, Exodus chapter 29. It is a long chapter, and we're going to read the whole thing, um, and then we're going to jump into the actual study of the word. Okay, Debbie.
1: Now this is what you shall do to them who consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons, to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breast piece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull. And put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood, and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and take part of the blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar, And of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his son's and his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his son's and his son's garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is a ram of ordination and one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offerings that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take a ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy." Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering and a drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma a of food offering to the Lord it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the tent at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory i will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar aaron also and his sons i will consecrate to serve me as priests I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God.
0: Lord, we come before you now, and we ask for your favor toward us in giving us clarity and insight and wisdom, Lord, into understanding a text like this. Um, Lord, it is so easy for us just to to allow all of this to kind of uh, melt together in our minds and and really have a hard time making sense of it. So, Lord, this morning, uh, what we know not would you teach us. Lord, what we are not would you make us. And what we have not would you give us. And allow me as your messenger, as your mouthpiece, Lord, to simply proclaim your truth. And, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would... Uh, give uh, just give clarity, Lord, to what it is that you desire for us to learn and to receive this morning. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Ordination. That's a special time in the life of a church. It's a special time in particular in the life of someone who is being called into gospel ministry. And it's a time specifically when a man receives the affirmation of God's call to ministry on his life. It's a time when the church examines and affirms his life and his doctrine, and it culminates with the laying on of hands of the elders and really endorsing this man for gospel ministry. So it's a time of for affirmation, when one's life is observed and examined and recognized and affirmed by God's church and its elders. It's also a time for authentication, where in the examination of that candidate, the the, the elders in the church are there to, to make sure this person understands the truth of God's word. And in particular, in an ordination uh, process, the candidate must present an, a, a doctrinal statement as well as a statement on the philosophy of ministry. Um, it's quite a rigorous process. And then finally, there is this time of consecration where having affirmed and authenticated the individual, the church and the elders agree with God that the individual and themselves, that this man should be set apart for the ministry of the word. And friends, it is a, it's a significant um, anchor to any person who's been called to ministry and for me in particular I look back on my ordination as the confirmation of God's call that I believe God had put on my life and friends if it were not for that call if it were not for that affirmation I wonder if I would have persevered in ministry facing the kind of things that pastors often face my 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 call to ministry my my ordination anchored me to do uh, uh anchored me to to god's will for my life in other words, there's lots of other things out there you could say you could do vocationally, but this is what God has called a pastor to, and so it anchored me during those times of discouragement when people rebelled in the church when there was rumor or slander or false accusation that was abounding. And although there may be thoughts of giving up, it reminded me, Rod, you're called to this. You're called to this. And it anchored me to God's purposes for my life. Ordination has fueled me to face the hardships of ministry with confidence. To go in fully aware that there are going to be times of difficulty. When I share with my dad years ago, um, hey dad, I think God's calling me into ministry. He and he was a pastor at the time. He looked at me and says, Do you understand what that means? And do you understand the hardship of that call? He wanted to make sure this wasn't some kind of a kind of like, you know, bandwagon thing because other people were doing it. He wanted to make sure I understood the difficulty and the cost of that kind of calling. So ordination fuel has fueled me through the years. Ordination challenges me to walk humbly and to pursue holiness in my own life. Uh, Robert Murray McShane said that what my people need is my holiness first. Friends, that's so important. And then the fourth thing here, just in my mind, is this, that ordination reminds me that I'm just a sinful man seeking to be faithful to God's call to shepherd the flock. This is his ministry and that my role is to point God's people to the word and to Christ. And by the way, as a pastor, my role is simply to exercise God's gifting in the context of the church. That's why, if you, you may have seen at one time, there were these big chairs that were up here. All right. We remove those. Why? Because as a pastor, I want to sit down with the congregation. I want to stand with the congregation and sing together. I'm one of you, except that God has given me a pastor-teacher gift to to use for his glory. We're all the church together. Now, friends, I just share all that with you, because hopefully you've noticed that in our text, there is an emphasis, yes, on the garments that we looked at last week, because there's an overflow. These two chapters, 28 and 29, go together together. But in chapter 29, we find here the consecration needed for service to the Lord in the tabernacle where God dwells. The first consecration, in particular, of Aaron and his sons is this ordination. And we read of this ordination first in chapter 28. Look at chapter 28, verse 41. This was kind of a summary statement. As we were ending up in chapter 28, looking at the garments, verse 41, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And I want you to notice that throughout chapter 29, this word ordain is used over and over and over again. In verse 9, thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. In verse 22 and 26 and verse 27 and verse 31, it talks about the ram of ordination. And then in verse 29, 33, 34, and 35, ordination is brought up again. This, this whole chapter is just full of the theme of ordination, And so this passage is speaking to us about the importance of the priest's ordination that takes place at his first priestly consecration. So this is a, a kind of a, a coming together of ordination and consecration. So here's how I want to state our purpose or the, the proposition. In order for proper service to take place before the Lord, that would be in the context of the tabernacle, there must be a thorough an ongoing consecration. In other words, for someone to represent God, there must be ordination and there must be consecration. Those priests must be ceremonially clean before the Lord. Hear this. Since the priests are not holy, they must become symbolically and ceremonially holy through the blood sacrifices before they can serve the Lord in the tabernacle. That's why we have all this technical jargon to get the priest to the place where they are actually truly symbolically consecrated before the Lord. And God is saying to the priests, I have chosen you to serve me, your holy priests. I have clothed you to serve me, holy garments. Now I'm going to consecrate you for serving me, a holy vocation. This is their role. This is their function. They are to be holy priests with holy garments, um, and they are going to serve God there in, in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. As we look at our text, maybe to kind of give it a little better understanding, let's just consider the structure, how it's laid out. Really three sections. Verses 1 through 9 is a preparation section. We're going to look at the next section, which is consecration, verses 10 through 28. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. That's the heart of the passage. And then what I'm calling vocation, verses 29 through 42, because ultimately this is where it leads to the ongoing ministry of the priests in Israel. And as you can imagine, that that lion's share where we have these three sacrifices is where we're going to land the plane. But first of all, let's consider the priests' necessary preparation. And we have that uh, in verses 1 through 9 in particular. Look at verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve you as priests, right? There's the heart of what this whole passage is about. And what we're going to see here is Moses consecrating Aaron and his sons so that they can serve the Lord as priests in the tabernacle. First of all, though, they have to gather what they need. And what we have here in these few verses, verses one through three in particular, or two through three, uh, really is a recipe, a recipe for consecration. Gather what you need so that you can actually follow through with these ceremonies, these sacrifices, these rituals before me. And you have really two aspects: you have the meat or the flesh, which is the bull and the two rams, and then you have the bread, the unleavened bread, the unleavened cakes with mixed oil, the unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and they're all to be made of wheat flour, or fine wheat flour, and then all of the bread is placed in a basket. All right. So this is what they need. This is like, you know, when you're when you're looking online for a recipe for some good meal, whatever, you know, they put a little box at the bottom of the page and here's what you need. Here's the ingredients for it. This is what they have. Make sure you have this, because when you have this, you have what you need then to carry out um, these these sacrifices uh, before me. So gather what you need. Secondly, get yourself dressed. And that's the rest here. Verses four through nine. Notice it. Verse four, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and wash them with water. So first of all, there is a there's a washing that takes place. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron uh, the coat and the robe and the ephod and the, and the ephod and the breastplate um, and, and gird with skillfully with the woven band of the ephod. In other words, they're washed. Now they're clothed. But this is not just go get dressed. This is a ceremonial washing. This is a ceremonial cleaning, uh, uh, sorry, clothing, right? And then we move on ultimately uh, to a ceremonial anointing. Verse 7, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So all this preparation is saying, get all the stuff that you need. Now put on, get yourself washed. Make sure, uh, make sure that Aaron and his sons are washed, that they're properly clothed. And Moses is the one who's doing this. And then anoint them to prepare them now for the heart of what God is calling them to do. Now, let's consider not just the priest's necessary uh, preparation, but let's now jump into the heart here, the priest's ugly consecration. In this section, we're going to encounter what will be in today's standards something that feels ugly and barbaric. I mean, you probably felt that as you were reading things in this text. Body parts, right? Fat of liver, um, entrails, internal organs, dung. This is not a pretty picture. This is not what we would typically consider beautiful. But as you notice in this passage, what God ultimately desires is something that is pleasing to him. And we've got to be able to put those two things together. God is doing something through these sacrifices, not only to accomplish some ceremonial um, activity, but also to teach the priests and to remind the priests and Israel of his holiness and their sinfulness. And in particular, how the blood of the sacrifice animal could bring them to a right relationship with God and so there's three offerings. We're going to begin with the first offering. And that's just verses 10 through 14. And this is called the sin offering. And it involves the bull. Look at verse 10. And you shall bring the bull before the tent of the meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. He shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar With your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour at the base of the altar. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that this sacrifice was very costly. If you you are involved in cattle at all, you would understand that that bulls are a prized possession. And you got to think about who is supplying the bulls here. It's not the priests, it's the people. And these people are nomadic. They've come out of Egypt. And they came out with with animals. They came out with, with cattle. But to give up a bull for sacrifice was no small matter. Especially when you think about the fact that none of it was going to be used for food, it was all going to be consumed. So it was costly. Secondly, it was bloody. Now, sometimes we think, you know, last week I had a nice picture up on the screen of here's the the high priest clothes and here's, you know, the breast uh, breast piece and here's the ephod and here's the turban. But look, once they started to get to work. All that stuff changed. It would have been messy. It would have been bloody. It would have been ugly. It was a butchering of a bull. And the blood was to be put on the horns of the altar and the rest was to be poured out at the base of the altar. Friends, this is not the kind of thing that we would say, hey, let's go slaughter a bull together. Who wants to go? Now, I know there's a couple of you strange people in here that say, yeah, I'm okay. I've done it before. But that's not the norm for us because we don't typically you know, do that, especially here in the Bay Area. Maybe if I was out in the country a little bit, there'd be some people that would know what we're talking about. Not only was it costly and bloody, but it was also symbolic. First, the good parts are to be burned On the altar, look at verse 13, the fat that covers the entrails, the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys uh, uh, with the fat that is on them. These are the good parts, interestingly enough. The, The bad parts, verse 14, the flesh, the skin, and the dung are to be taken outside the camp and to be burned with fire. They're all to be burned. They're all to be consumed. And when we talk about the camp, We're not talking here about a group campsite at Lake Shabot, okay? We're not talking about taking uh, these these bits and pieces outside of the tabernacle. We're talking about taking them outside of the dwelling place of Israel as they're camped around the tabernacle. They're taking these parts outside of that whole camp. So there's something going on here. When, when the sacrifice is made and the smoke is going up from the tabernacle, a priest or some priest now begin to take all of these bad parts, you want to say, and they begin to walk through the camp of Israel. And you can imagine what's happening like that. It's just like maybe in your home and you have a little one, you're like, oh. Diaper coming through. Everyone's like backing up, right? We we don't want to be contaminated with that diaper. No, no. Take that outside. Get that out of the camp, okay? They knew what the priests were doing. And they were watching and seeing it, and they were reminded as the priests were doing this, taking it out of the camp. It was a constant reminder, friends, for God's people of their sinfulness, and in particular, the sinfulness and ugliness of their sin. It was ugly, disgusting, smelly, the opposite of a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It would be a reminder to them that God is not one uh, whom they could approach casually. God is one with whom they had to, first and foremost, have their sins dealt with. And this is true for the people and for the priests. The priests could not do the work unless they were purified. Now, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. Because one of the things that happens in Psalm 51, if you remember, this is David's psalm of repentance. All the sin that he committed, not just with Bathsheba, but the lying and the murder, all that. He is coming before the Lord. He's repenting. And he's saying some stuff about his sinfulness. And we're going to pick it up. In verse 5, Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's not the the mechanism of conception. It's just saying that sin transferred through conception. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David here is saying, I'm taking this deeper. I'm taking this into those inward places. I'm taking it to the inner man. And he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. See, he understands the ugliness and the sinfulness of his sin. And he's expressing that. He appeals then to God for cleansing, for joy and gladness, to blot out his iniquities, to create in him a clean heart and to restore the joy of his salvation. So the sin offering points to the gravity of our sin, friends. It's a picture of the sinfulness of sin and our need to have our sin purged and for the priest to be cleansed and pure before God. That's first of all the sin offering. God must deal with our sin. Secondly, we have the burnt offering. And this is having to do with the first ram. Remember, there were two rams that they were to bring. This is the first ram. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood, and throw it against the sides of the altar. And you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash the entrails in its legs, and put them uh, with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So this ram was to be without blemish, and the blood is thrown against the side of the altar. Now notice the details again. It is to be cut into pieces. Its legs and its entrails were to be washed again ceremonially. What is inside, and then those pieces, along with its head, are to be burned and completely consumed. On the altar. And friends, it's a picture to the priests that their whole lives were to be completely devoted to the Lord. There was nothing to be left on the altar. Everything was to be consumed, everything was sacrificed to the Lord. They were to be fully devoted to the Lord in their thoughts, in their behaviors, in their affections. God wants all of their devotion. He wants everything that has to do with them. And the aim of the sacrifice then was a heart of full devotion to the Lord. So this burnt offering was, uh, was, was a picture of what was true in their hearts. And remember, these are, these are symbolic. These are not actually doing anything. They are symbolic of what is true in the hearts of the priests. And once again, we reflect on Psalm 51 and what David is saying. And look at verse 16, if you would. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. See, the sacrifice or offering was not the point, friends. The Lord doesn't need another burnt offering. So what's the point? He says in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So this offering, friends, was a picture of full and absolute devotion of God's people to him. And God is saying to them, and he's saying to us, your sacrifices, your religious ceremonies, your frantic legalistic comings and goings, I never wanted that from you. What I wanted, what I always wanted, was your heart. The full, complete and unwavering devotion of your heart. And friends, it's so easy for us to go through the rituals and the rhythms and the ceremonies and the habits of religious activity and to be convinced that we're doing what God wants and what pleases him when in fact it doesn't because our hearts are far from him and what you find is that you have become exhausted by these man-made religious ritualisms that give the form of Christian godliness and you keep trying but you have nothing left to give because you've tried and you've tried and you've tried these sacrifices were exhausting. I mean, I have a hard enough time cutting just a prime rib. I might do it far often than I need to, but I mean, I have a hard time. Can you imagine what it would be like day after day serving in the temple? And that service involved the slaughter of a Sacrifice. And yet, the reality wasn't in the sacrifice. Now, what it, why does this happen? Why does it, this happen to Christians where we, we kind of get off track? Because somewhere along the way, you stopped doing what you were doing for the Lord. Long ago, you started living life in your own strength. And I'm talking here to people who identify themselves as believers who one time had their hearts focused and in tune with the Lord and wanting to serve him. But, but a little bit over time, they stopped doing things for the Lord and they were doing them now out of ritual. And So they frantically just want to continue to do these rituals, these 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 ceremonies, so to speak, to somehow appease God, to somehow please God and so that they will be accepted. And so they frantically pursue the spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, and fasting, and attending church, and Bible studies, which are all good. Not because they want God to have fullness and freedom to cleanse their heart, but because they desperately want acceptance. My friends, see, there's there's a, a nuance going here. And the nuance is so important for us. They're trying to perform their way into a right relationship with God. And God is saying, I don't want your performance. I want your heart. See, it's subtle. We start something good. We start doing a Bible reading plan. And before long, it's like, I've got to get it done. I've got to get it done. I've got to get that check. I've got to make sure I get, I've got to reach this goal. I've got to be disciplined. And you forget about why you're even doing it. And this could happen in so many different ways, friends. And these might be little ruts that we get ourselves into. And what I'm saying is we've got we've to reel ourselves in. We've got to pull ourselves back to the place where what we're doing before the Lord is not somehow trying to perform. But they are... The means by which God's grace is channeled to us. Now, I want to say something very careful. If you are doing a Bible reading plan, I'm really thrilled you're doing that. It's a good discipline. It's a good habit to get in there. But if you're locked into that reading plan and it's not really feeding your soul, change your plan and allow the reading of God's word to actually feed your soul. Because that's the point. Okay? And these are just little practical things that we can get so caught up in. It's like, well, are you still on the McShane program? It's great if you are. Or if you're in the, the Horner program, which is like much bigger than that. The point is you can get stuck and you can get into a rut and you can just be doing things that you think are ways in which you are performing before God. You may not see it in those turns, but that's what you're doing. Why? Because you want acceptance. God says, look, you're already accepted. <laughs> You're one of my children. Now enjoy. Enjoy these spiritual disciplines. Don't somehow perform. Enjoy the beauty and the fellowship and the wonder of this. See, the Lord says, I don't delight in these sacrifices. What I delight in is the broken and contriteness that can only take place in the inner man, in the heart. That's where he wants to take us. So back in Exodus 29, verse 18, we're told this burnt offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that's what David says at the end of Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You won't despise, why? Because it's pleasing to you. That's what you're after. So the purpose and the point of the burnt offering was to demonstrate to the priest their need for full devotion to the Lord. And it should be a challenge to us to consider whether or not that is our heart's orientation. Third, the ordination offering, which is the second ram, beginning at verse 19 through 28. It's a longer section. So this third offering, this ordination offering, whereby the priests are branded in the blood of their ordination. Now the reason it's called an ordination offering is because in the Hebrew this word means hand. And the idea here is that when one person is, uh, is ordained, uh, uh, this, this hand is filled with the responsibility that God has given them. So they have been given this responsibility, and they are to hold it, they are to take it in their hand. It's their responsibility, it's their role, it's their function as representatives for the people to God. And we're going to see three aspects then of this ordination offering. First of all, there's this branding that takes place. In verses 19 and 20, we have this really strange ritual, don't we, where the blood of the lamb, or the ordination, is put on the right earlobe, or on the right Thumb of the right hand and on the right big toe. A little Bible trivia. Um, if anyone ever asks you, is a big toe ever mentioned in the Bible? Here it is. Okay? Here it is. Now what's, what is go- This is really, really strange. I mean, the modern equivalent would be like the, the three monkeys, right? You know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, right? In the sense of there's something about these these aspects that God is seeking to communicate through this putting of blood. In particular, first of all, let's think through this. Each of these expressions has to do with the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. Now, I'm sorry for all of you people that are left-handed out there, but the dominant is the right. And what God is saying here is, look, I want to be the dominant one in your life. You're identifying yourself by these actions, by the symbolism that I am the most important thing. So your ear, everything they heard was devoted to the Lord. It's a picture of hearing only and, and, and first and foremost, the word of God. There's lots of things for us to hear it in this world. But the primary thing that we should be listening through is the word of God. The thumb, everything they did is devoted to the Lord. Everything they put their hands on to do was to be devoted to the Lord. The toe, everything, everywhere they went is devoted to the Lord. They were not to go where God had not told them to go or to serve in a way that God had not told them to serve. Now, perhaps there's also an allusion here to Exodus 21, verse 6. If you remember, when we were in that passage, we have there a slave who wanted now to affirm and affix himself to his master because he loved his master. And so he willfully um, did that through a sign. If you remember, they would take him to the doorpost of the house and they would brand him with a nail through the earlobe. I should say the earlobe, the right side. Okay. It was a willful commitment to the lifelong service to this master. And you wonder whether or not the allusion here to the priest is to say, by this blood on your ear, you are willfully serving me uh, as priest. This is, this is your mark. One thing is clear, if a priest of the Lord were to stand before you right now, you could identify them. And I do not mean by their clothes. I mean by the markings of the blood on their ear, on their thumb, and on their toe. And by the way, we haven't talked about this yet. You notice that there's no shoes going on in the, in the garments that we're talking about the priests. Because they're on hallowed ground. They're barefoot. Right? So so the priests are, are going to be functioning in their sacrifices, not just in pristine clothes. They're all bloody, but before they even get there, they've got these markings going on. These markings are to remind them of something. So first of all, it, it has to do with this branding. Secondly, it has to do with anointing. Then you should take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil, this is verse twenty-one. And sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be a, a holy, and a be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So once again, we have here the emphasis on the garments. But now this is for anointing, where they were to be anointed with blood and oil. Oil was a picture in the Bible. Uh, of purity and cleansing, but it was not a picture of forgiveness. Only blood was a picture of that forgiveness. So they have the oil and blood coming together here as this wonderful picture of forgiveness. And that's why, you know, in, in Hebrews and verse uh, chapter nine and verse twenty-two, it's important for us to recognize here what is said: without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you have this branding, you have this anointing, you have next this representing. I'm not going to read this whole section, but in this whole section, verses 22 to 25, what you have here is is this idea of of this wave offering, and it's it's a wave offering. It's some kind of a symbolic um, activity where the meat and the bread was waved in some fashion either to draw attention to God, but also to symbolize a wave in between the people and between God. Remember, the, the the priest's role was to function as a mediator between the people and between God. And so the wave has an idea of here, here is from the people and here is from God. Here is from the people in the fullness of our hand and here is for God. It's a very interesting aspect of what's going on with this ordination offering. It's all part of the package of the ordination offering. So it's not a separate thing. It's all part of this ordination offering. And then finally, I'm using the word fellowshipping to encompass the idea that for them to do this, if you, if you, if you notice in this next section, verses 26 through 28, you have this idea of your portion and this portion is actually coming from the people. The priests were not the ones who provided the sacrifices, but the priests were the ones who benefited personally from some of the sacrifices. If you remember, the bull was fully consumed. The burnt offering was fully consumed. The ordination offering, some of it was consumed, and some of it was given then to the priests. But only the priests could eat it. Why? Because it was holy. It was for them. But where did that sacrifice, where did that animal come from? That animal comes then from the the, the people. So there is this fellowship that's that's taking place. There's a joining. There's a a partnership. Now, the, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It means a partnership. It means a coming together. The same idea is here that the people of Israel were joining the priests as their representatives. They were fellowshipping together so that this sacrifice could take place. And the priests then were benefiting by the food that was provided as a result of this sacrifice. And friends, it's a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that each one of us makes in giving our tithes and offerings so that the work of the ministry for God can continue. The priests were dependent on God, to be sure, but God provided for them through the free will gifts of the people. And even today, the church functions in a very same way. It is the joyful, obedient love gifts, the tithes and offerings that allow the church to function and for its vocational pastors to serve the Lord freely. Now, friends, I want to just draw attention now to all three of these sacrifices. And this is where we're kind of moving into the heart of what's going on here. I ask you this question, what is similar in all three of these sacrifices? What is repeated each time the sacrifice is made? Let's look at the beginning statements of each sacrifice. Look, if you would please, at verse 10. Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the bull. Look, if you would please, at verse 15. Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the ram. Look, if you would please, also at verse 19. Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the ram. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of each of these animals. They saw their eyes when it was alive. They heard, they saw, they felt the life disappear from these animals as they were sacrificed. And each time they were reminded of what sin costs. As a result, they cannot disregard sin. They cannot treat it lightly. They cannot sweep it under the rug. They're seeing it every time in the face of this animal. Each time they understood that in order for there to be fellowship, God must deal with sin and that there's only one way to deal with sin and that is through blood. And laying their hands on the animal Transferred their guilt onto the animal symbolically. It would be like confessing their sins and then putting those sins on the animal and then sacrificing that animal as their substitute, carrying the weight and the burden of their sin. But the priest would do this over and over and over again. So don't miss this, I want to say, more personal human aspect of the offering of these sacrifices. The Lord did not call these men to be priests because they were holy. He called them to be priests so that he could make them holy. It's really important, friends. We don't come and gather as a church because we have it all cleaned up and put together. We come because we are sinners and we are reminded once again of the gravity of our sin and what it required. These sacrifices pointed to an ultimate offering that was given in the person of Christ. This past year, uh, we had to put one of our cats down. His name was Timon. He was a cute little guy, but he was a pain in the neck. Um, we realized that the reason he was a pain in the neck is actually he had a growth inside his body that was causing him to do things that we didn't like, like peeing all over the place. Um, and so we realized he was really struggling, and we, we we talked about it, and it was hard, but we decided we, he needs to be put down because he was suffering, and he was walking strange and all that kind of stuff. And I remember being in the examination room with my wife and the the vet and the attendant. Um, Stroking my friend for of nine years, um, pets become part of your family in that sense. And knowing what was about to happen, and uh, looking him in the eye as the needle was squeezed, and my wife was doing the same thing, and we just watched as the life disappeared from him. It was a stunning thing. Um, I was overwhelmed with grief. <laughs> Um, sadness at the loss of my little fuzzy friend. Um, And yet he's just a cat, right? But he was my fuzzy friend, little cat. I I share that, friends, because I'm going to ask a question. We're going to move into an area that I think is really important for us. I wonder sometimes if we treat Christ's sacrificial death, which all of these sacrifice point to, that we treat his sacrificial death in a clinical, mechanical Transactional way rather than in a personal way. Now, I want to do some audience participation here. I know fear rises up when someone says that, right? I want to call you to do something in the arena of your heart and by faith. I want you to place your hand upon the head of Jesus Christ. And I want you to look into his eyes. And I want you to hear him say, come to me, and I will give you rest. I am the lamb who takes away your sin. I have come that you may have life. Today, you will be with me in paradise. My friends, I'm not, I'm not trying to be sentimental. You should know that if you're a part of our church. That's not where I go. But I am trying to be personal. Jesus being our sacrifice is not just theoretical, transactional, or theological. It is all of those things, but it is more. It is personal. He died for you. And every time a priest put his hand on that animal... He is looking, in a sense, into the eyes of Christ and the sacrifice that he would accomplish ultimately, once for all. And yet, I think sometimes we kind of go around life thinking there was some kind of a transactional thing that happened back somewhere and it meant something. And what I want to draw your attention to is in all of this, this was personal. And we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not talking about having a buddy. We're talking about being welcomed into this relationship with the one who was our substitute, who took our sin, bore the wrath of God. We can look into his eyes as his life is taken away for us. Let that settle in for. I want you to know that in love, he willingly took all of your sins upon himself. And I want you to trust in what he said and what he did and what he has promised to be true. And that in trusting his sacrifice, you can be assured that your sins have been transferred from you to him. You are forgiven. And as a result, you are clean. The Apostle Peter describes the believers he's writing to in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, To those who are uh, elect exiles of the dispersion, dot 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 for sprinkling with his blood. Where does he get that idea from? the ongoing sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament, sprinkle after sprinkle after sprinkle, is all for his own people. Friends, when the world tries to tell you that Jesus was simply a great teacher who lived a moral life, then you must ask the question, then why have I been sprinkled by his blood? When the world tries to convince you that what really matters with Jesus is that he left us an example of how to live, then you must ask the question, "Then, then what about how and why he died? Why does Scripture spend so much time talking about that if it was just those few years while he walked on this earth? Friends, the world is not able to understand what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do because they don't read the Bible in its context. They can't. They don't have the Holy Spirit to give wisdom and illumination. So they'll pick a few verses out of the New Testament and have no idea how the Old Testament lays the foundation and the structure for understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. But we have the great privilege of seeing here, even in, Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, the wonder and the majesty of Jesus Christ, our sacrifice. And so we're called to place our hands upon Jesus by faith so that he becomes our substitute and his sacrifice pays the penalty for our sin. In summary of these three sacrifices, we see that God's priests and we, his children, must come to him for cleansing for devotion, for fellowship. Now, friends, this last section, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, the priest's ongoing vocation. I'll just kind of lift off, list off what's happening here. But the idea is, based on this, I want you to continue doing this, right? This is what the priest should be doing. This is how they should be living. And there's a few other things that are mentioned in there. But let's just quickly go through them. I'll make a couple of comments before we get to our, our closing thoughts here. What is God calling them to do? First of all, to wear their holy garments. And the important thing you need to notice here is that their garments did not belong to them. When Aaron died, his garments were not put in the grave with him. The garments stayed in the tabernacle. And the new high priest was to wear those priestly garments. And friends, it's just a reminder to us that we are not the point. (laughs) Aaron was serving because God had called him to serve, but ultimately Aaron wasn't the point. Secondly, they were to eat their holy meal. And it's just a reminder here that after all these sacrifices, there was a meal. We saw that on the mountain when, when Israel uh, had this these sacrifices at the, the bottom of the mountain. And ultimately it ended up with this um, uh, this. This meal that they had together because it was a covenant meal. They had made this covenant in blood, but it was followed up with a meal. And the meal here is flesh and bread. Does that remind you of anything? Of course, it foreshadows the covenant meal that we celebrate, the Lord's Supper, the flesh of the sacrifice and the bread that we partake in. Number three, that to observe their holy days. And what's interesting here is just the emphasis in this little section about seven days, seven days, seven days. An ordination service lasting seven days. I've been to some ordination services, but they haven't lasted seven days. And they haven't been bloody. But this is what was going on. It might be a reminder of, of creation, the idea of completeness and perfection. And interesting, in this, in this section, it does talk about the, the importance of the altar being consecrated also. And it's a reminder to us that when we are unclean ceremonially, whatever we touch becomes unclean. And we must then uh, be cleansed in order for the altar to be cleansed. So there's, there's a purpose that God has here in all this stuff that's taking place. His holiness matters. Next, they are to offer their holy sacrifices, verses 40 through 41. And these were daily sacrifices. There was to be this perpetual sacrificing that was going on. And when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, no sacrifices were made. And no sacrifices have been made since then. There's a story of a little boy who was speaking to a rabbi, and he asked, Rabbi, what is the significance of the blood in the sacrifice? And the rabbi says, it is for the forgiveness of, Of my sins, son. And so the boy says, Well, Rabbi, since the temple is destroyed, there's no sacrifice. Yes, my son, that's right, he said. And so the little boy says, Then where do we find forgiveness? And they're silent. See, if you reject Christ as the sacrifice, you have no forgiveness. That's the weight of it. Because he is that sacrifice, but he's the sacrifice that that the Jews ultimately rejected. And finally, we get to the aim and the focus and the goal of all of this. This is drawing the whole role and function of the priest to a close. And we have here this this, this emphasis to meet with God. So God had told Israel that he wanted to take them out into the wilderness so that he could meet with them. And the is so they they could worship him. And we pick that up here, in these final verses, we see the point of all these sacrifices. God wants to meet and to speak with his people. He wants to have fellowship with his people. So he says in verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. That's what he wants to do. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. That's the theme of the whole book. Who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. It's kind of like a Hebrew Old Testament exclamation point. It's God's way of saying, listen to what I'm saying. My friends, this is is where this is all going. God is establishing the priesthood so that his people can have a way to meet with him through sacrifice. My friends, this is so foreign to so many of us. We get bits and pieces, but now we're seeing the birthplace of it all and how How this section just kind of splashes throughout the rest of Scripture, doesn't it? Now, I want to draw our attention just in closing here to three things. Three things that flow out of this text that might help us draw together what's going on. First of all, I think there's a need for us to be honest about the sinfulness of our sin. We're living in an age where we don't like to call it sin, we'll call it an affair. Rather than adultery. We'll call it, you know, no, just it was a fib. No, you lied. There's all sorts of ways we've we've taken away from, from wanting to actually be honest about what we have done. And friends, it's not just that we need to identify sin, but we need to understand that sin is ugly, it's dirty, it's defiled, it is like dung, it needs to be taken out of the camp. It's just not it's just a quirk of my personality. No, it is offensive to God. And we need to be honest about that. It's okay in the context of Gately Bible Church for us to talk about our sin as sin. And in fact, if we don't, then we can't make any progress. We can't make any progress in our Christian walk if we're not willing to deal with sin as sin, as it's revealed in Scripture in particular. Secondly, not only be honest about the sinfulness of our sin, secondly, be certain about the results of your salvation. And I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And I'll remind you that the verses leading up to this talk about horrible, vile attitudes and behaviors of people. And, and here Paul says, And such were some of you. And in the Greek language, we don't get it necessarily here in the ESV. In the the New American standard, you get it. But actually, there's a a but, and it's a it's it's like a, a very strong kind of but that comes into the text here. And it's not just there once, it's actually there three times. But you were washed, but you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's what we need to understand. These aren't things that happen after salvation. These are things that happen at the moment of your conversion. You're honest about your sin. You come to the Lord confessing your sin and repenting of your sin. And here's what God does with you at that moment of salvation. He says, you are clean. You are holy. And you are in right standing with me. Not because of anything you have done, but because of Christ. Now friends, this is so important. This is where Satan wants to come and meddle with us. He wants you to think, well, maybe that's not true, because look at the sin you're committing. No, 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 no. You go back to a passage like this and say, no, God says this is true about me now, because my salvation isn't dependent on what I do. It's dependent on what Christ has done. And if I feel like I have to contribute anything to it, then my salvation isn't all of God. It concludes me, and then I can fail, and it all unravels. Such were some of you, but you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Friends, just settle in on that. Be convinced of the results of your salvation. And number three, be active in the pursuit of your Sanctification. Because you are washed, you are sanctified, and you're justified, now you have a platform to become what you already are. So when scripture says, be holy, oh my God, be holy for I am holy, you already are holy because of what Christ has done for you. But now, practically speaking, what God wants you to do is to become what you are, right? Pursue your Christ-likeness. And so that's why we come to a passage like Romans 12.1. We've talked about this. We know this passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, uh, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Day by day, offering your bodies as a sacrifice, not because you're trying to somehow perform for God, but because you want to live out of what he has created you for. He's created you to live this way as his priests offering sacrifices. You believe in the priesthood of the believer. This is you. And you and I offer sacrifices every day. And the important sacrifice is of ourselves. Day by day by day. My friends, these instructions to the priests, Help them to see their sinfulness. Help them to see the the, the need for their full devotion. Help them to see the beauty of, of fellowship, not only with God, but with the people of God. But it drives us also to see our need then to live in a way where we are those sacrifices. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. And he's died in our place out of love for us and its personal friends. Let us rejoice in that together. Lord, help us as we now consider these things for your glory. We ask in your name. Amen.